0: Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening this week and supporting public radio. Turbulent. That's how the Federal Reserve's top official in the southeastern U.S. describes the American economy one month into the national emergency brought on by COVID-19. Raphael Bostic is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. The central bank splits the country into regions, and Florida is included in Bostic's territory. The agency has two goals, low inflation, which it is historically low right now, and full employment. That part of the mandate is why the Fed has taken historic actions in the past month from cutting its target interest rate to zero to buying trillions of dollars worth of all kinds of loans hoping to prop up the U.S. economy. In South Florida, the economic consequences of the public health measures to slow the spread of COVID-19 are especially pronounced. About one in nine jobs here is in the hardest-hit hospitality industry. Over a million people in South Florida earned less than six hundred dollars a week when they were working. Tens of thousands of people have filed for unemployment. Countless others have tried, as the state system failed to keep up with demand. We began our interview late last week with Atlanta Federal Reserve President Raphael Bostic by focusing on the fast crash in the job market.
1: We knew going into the this public health crisis that. The solution that was being put forward by public health officials was going to make it very difficult from an economic perspective, and so I think we're seeing that right now with the record numbers of unemployment filings and the amount of distress that we're hearing from businesses and from banking institutions. Um, all of this is is fully expected, and you know ultimately though, you know I try to put my focus on the response and recovery aspects. And so I'm, I'm hopeful and very optimistic with a lot of the things that we've done at the Fed, as well as uh, the action by the Congress to provide support to continue to um, try to create a bridge for businesses and, and families um, as they try to weather this until we get to the other side where the public health crisis is handled. And we can uh, really turn uh, with a degree of energy back to just getting our economy back to where it was.
0: In the Great Recession, the economy lost jobs for 20 straight months, shedding about eight and a half million jobs. More than 16 million people already combined have filed for first-time unemployment in just the past month, including almost a half million in Florida. How much worse could it get?
1: Well, you know, I think that it's important to just keep in mind that this is not a typical economic uh, disruption. You know, usually when we have an economic disruption, what happens is that we see froth or excessive risk uh, being taken in the in the marketplace. Uh, and that then leads to a real retrenchment on the part of uh, large parts of our economy. Um, that's really not what's happening here. This is a very, very specific and in many regards, idiosyncratic situation that we have here. And so, you know, I, I would expect that... Um, the response coming out of this is actually not going to look like anything we've seen before, but rather is going to um, have its own character. And I'm hopeful that if the supports that have been put in place and, and are being rolled out are effective, will lead us to have a, a much more robust response and, and a recovery than we might have expected uh, if we had had our garden variety recession.
0: I'll ask you about some of those actions the Federal Reserve has taken and some of the hoped-for implications of those actions in a moment, President Bostic. But back to the job destruction that we've seen and how fast and furious it's been affecting households all across America and certainly here in South Florida as we're a hospitality-based economy. Have you been able to kind of project about how many more people may wind up unemployed even if for a short time period?
1: so you know it's very difficult to do that and um most of the models that we have from an economics perspective uh are based on historical experiences so you know we ask when we were in this situation before how did the economy recover and how did it respond and how did employers change their actions we don't have that kind of um history which makes it very difficult, and and you know, I I don't actually think it's uh, particularly uh, useful, really, to spend a lot of time dwelling on that, but rather turning much more to the where are the stresses in the economy, and what kind of supports can we put in place uh, to to minimize the likelihood that uh, the situation you describe, which is permanent disruption of and destruction of these jobs, uh, that hopes that that is not the state that we wind up in.
0: Is the Florida economy with the reliance on tourism and real estate at any more heightened of a vulnerability than other uh, metropolitan areas or other regional economies?
1: Well, I think that the South Florida economy's uh, reliance on those sectors does expose it uh, pretty significantly to these challenges because of the nature of the transactions associated with them. So we know that in uh, the, a lot of the hospitality businesses, it requires people to be close to each other and to interact and engage on a regular basis. And if you can't do that, um, that's going to uh, mean uh, quite a bit of disruption and pain. So so yes, I think South Florida is is very exposed and at risk. Um, I do think though that if we can help the businesses that are out there, the hotels, the uh, the, the real estate sector, uh, continue to function as close to par as possible and provide support for workers so that um, they can continue to still be proximate and close to where they've had their jobs. And uh, those jobs don't fully disappear. Um, I have some hope that we can see uh, a, a good amount of recovery.
0: Do you think with the vulnerabilities that you describe in South Florida, because of the uh, more exposure around tourism, hospitality, and real estate, is it more at risk of falling into a prolonged recession or perhaps even something worse
1: so you know that's a good question and and this is another one where it's it's kind of difficult to uh to answer that with a with a clear definitive answer. you know one of the things that that I've been watching very closely as we've been going through this and we've entered into this crisis period is really how are consumers responding, how are families responding, and how are business leaders responding? And so much of the answer to your question will be based, will will rely upon, uh, do they lose confidence and just going and doing things? Or will they be much more uh, conservative and cautious in engaging in the economy and particularly in sectors where there's a lot of interaction? I think it actually goes two ways. One is that clearly, if people do not believe that the public health challenge has been handled, I think it's going to be we're going to be hard pressed to see a robust re-entry into the economy. But on the other hand, if we do get that under control and people don't feel like they're exposed to disproportionate risk, I actually think that there's a a good chance that uh, we might see a very strong uh, boost. I have a sense that. If we get to a place where um, we, it's clear that we've licked this thing and we've, we're on the other side, that that craving for social interaction that is part of what makes us all human, um, that's gonna kick in pretty strong and, and we might uh, see a pretty good recovery and rebound.
0: Sounds like you are an optimist when it comes to that human need and human nature to connect, that that is going to be strong enough after we've cleared the public health emergency but it'll be strong enough to kind of break the gravity of uh, this fast and swift recession that we find ourselves in.
1: So I, I am, I'm trying to remain hopeful. So, because if we don't start from a hopeful place, it's very difficult to imagine that we'll end in a hopeful place. So for now, I'm not seeing signs to suggest anything uh, radically different from that, but you know, these are, these are strange times and these are unusual times
0: Fear and stress and living with uncertainty is up and down the income strata, as you know, President Bostic And I'm wondering your thoughts on how this virus and the public health measures taken in order to address the spread of the virus, how those have exposed fundamental vulnerabilities um, in the economy, particularly those present here in South Florida, like underemployment, pay disparities and high costs of living.
1: Well, I would say, first of all, we've had these challenges for some time, and um, I think for us at our bank, one of the things that we've been doing is really trying to talk about this as much as possible. I worry about that stuff a lot. Uh, We talk about those things a lot, and uh, one of the things my staff is really uh, working hard on right now is to uh, try to make more people aware of the issues of resilience and uh, see if On the other side, we might be able to do some things a little differently to help people be more resilient uh, so that they uh, don't face those cliff challenges where you might completely lose a house or something like that.
0: That's Raphael Bostic, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. His Federal Reserve region includes Florida. Still to come, more from President Bostic. How can the central bank's actions help small businesses that dominate the South Florida
1: economy? We want to create some pathways whereby businesses don't have to worry so much about meeting a revenue target, but rather can focus much more on trying to preserve their relationships with their employees and work to get ready when the time is right to emerge from this in a position where they have relative strength.
0: Welcome back to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening and supporting public radio. Congress and President Trump have agreed to three government stimulus packages so far, including direct payments to most Americans, bigger unemployment checks and loans to companies to cover two and a half months of payroll. Together, the spending totals $2.2 trillion and more is expected. But the big money to support the economy is coming from the Federal Reserve. The central bank has launched more than 10 different strategies, including cutting its target interest rate to zero. It's announced programs to buy government bonds, to buy mortgage bonds, corporate bonds, to lend money to buy bonds backed by credit cards, buy loans issued to smaller companies, buy loans taken by local governments. The tab runs into the trillions of dollars and counting. As the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, Raphael Bostic, told us late last week, it's a lot of stuff. So how do these actions help companies survive, especially small companies in the hardest hit hospitality industry in South Florida? Back to our interview with President Bostic.
1: One of the things that we've really tried to do in the suite of things that we've done, and it's a lot of stuff, is really the point that there are stresses that are evolving and emerging in in financial markets and in basic functioning of capital markets Um, that if they're not resolved, it's very difficult to see how anything else is really going to work. So, you know, as we've seen stresses in, say, treasury markets or corporate bond markets, um, we have really stepped in to try to get those markets to make sure that they continue to function so that the companies that rely on those markets for funding can get them. And uh, some facilities that we're doing around uh, government bonds and municipal bonds, that governments are facing these same challenges as well as businesses are shutting down uh, for in response to the health crisis around property taxes and, and those sorts of revenue sources that they had been counting on. And without those, um, they won't be able to deliver the services they need. So we're trying as much as possible to monitor basically every market in the, in the country to see if there are stresses. And then to the extent that there are solutions that the Federal Reserve can uh, contribute to We're going to be there to try to make that difference.
0: And the solutions that the Federal Reserve has at its disposal uh, are targeted toward lending. The uh, solutions that the federal government and other local governments have are targeted toward spending. So on the lending side, the average South Florida company has 14 employees. This is an economy, as you know, is driven by small businesses. How targeted can the Federal Reserve be to help those small businesses?
1: there's a lot that we can do. There's a lot that we've already done. First thing that we've done is really try to manage and work with our relationships with banks to tell banks that, look, it's really important in this time of crisis that you reach out, engage your customers, and work with them uh, to help them get through this this difficult time as much as possible. Uh, We've done this in a number of ways. So we've tried to change some of our, our regulatory calendar processes to ensure that Banks are not overly burdened in terms of having to respond to examination timetables and the like, and can really focus all of their time and energy on working with customers, doing customer relationships, trying to restructure loans and, and change their relationships so that businesses don't face that kind of stress. But we've reduced uh, the reserve requirements to zero uh, so that banks don't have to hold any extra capital uh, with us in the Federal Reserve System but rather can make that capital available for loans and, and other sorts of investments. We've sent a strong message that modifications done in this time will not leave banks liable and leave them in trouble you know, six or 12 months from now, which is one of the things that we've heard from banks a lot, that they're they're not, they don't have confidence that regulators are gonna remember what we've just been, what we are going through right now and will view those decisions in a less positive way. Then another thing that we're doing, which is really important, is we're providing support for some of the the facilities that have been issued and and done by the Congress. So trying to make sure there's liquidity in the Paycheck Protection Program so that banks are not constrained in real time with the amount of capital they have. We are working with the Treasury Department to stand up a facility that we're calling Main Street Lending Facility to deal with businesses and provide liquidity to businesses that are uh, just above that SBA cap in terms of size of businesses. So we're really trying to have touch points at pretty much as, well, as many segments as we can possibly do while staying within the law.
0: Liquidity is such an important part of the American economy, the flowing of funds, the the dollars that can move as freely and as frictionless as possible between borrowers and lenders, consumers and companies. And the Federal Reserve is certainly supplying that liquidity by buying uh, all different kinds of bonds from uh banks or loans from banks trying to encourage those banks to issue those loans. But how do companies and individuals that may not have any revenue at all right now get that credit?
1: Well, there are a couple of there are a couple of ways to think about this you know one is you know if they have relationships with their banks, you know I've talked to many bank institutions that have basically said, you know, we're we're allowing you to defer payments for six months or a year so that your need to have revenues today is much more uh, limited. Moreover, uh, things like the Paycheck Protection Program are designed to get capital to businesses so that they can cover their payrolls and their leases and their rents to the expe- extent that they have them. So that is another area where having credit Becomes less pressing. So, what you're seeing, I think, through um, the responses by bank institutions, by the the federal government, and by us at the Fed, is really um, trying to say we want to create some bridges. We want to create some pathways whereby businesses don't have to worry so much about meeting a revenue target, but rather can can focus much more on trying to preserve their relationships with their employees and work to get ready when the time is right to emerge from this in a position where they have relative strength.
0: President Bostic, we have a couple of audience questions regarding those pathways and when they intersect between the banking industry and households. Ariana from Facebook uh, sent us this comment in question. Perhaps the Federal Reserve could come up with policies across the board so that private banks provide mortgage extensions to landlords that request it. Right now it's up to the banks. Some do, some don't. She continues, in addition, there needs to be some provision so that those with mortgages who are landlords pass on their relief to tenants. Uh, what What are your
1: thoughts in regards to that? Well, these are policies that are not directly in our purview. So um, I think these are important issues. And I, I will tell you, um, I've had many conversations with property owners and landlords who uh, would very much uh, agree with the sentiment articulated and do believe that this is one of those situations where that kind of relief should be afforded and passed on. So I would say this is something that is important for policymakers at the local level and at, at in D.C. to think about and to decide whether it's something that they wanted to enact.
0: We had a similar comment, President Bostic, from Jack on Facebook, who said rent relief and freezing rent increases must be done in any state where there has been mandatory shutdowns at the very least. Uh, what I'm interested in hearing from you, President Bostic, with the uh, Federal Reserve is how vulnerable do you think the housing market, both ownership and rental, is to experiencing longer-lasting damage from this response, necessary response as it is uh, from COVID-19?
1: Well, that's a very good question, and um, it's one that, that I... I wrestle with and worry about a lot. You know, I was present and engaged in the housing crisis when it happened at the Great Recession, and it was incredibly painful. It was uh, incredibly heart-wrenching to see the things that families were going through, and I think it's critically important that we avoid that and make sure that that does not happen. We do not have a repeat of that. I'm going to work as hard as I can to make sure that as we see tensions and difficulties in housing markets, that we understand the nature of them and stand ready to uh, offer advice and our expertise to try to help uh, minimize the types of concerns that, that are being raised in these messages. Speaking with
0: Rafael Bostic, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. His Federal Reserve region includes Florida. We spoke late last week. Still to come, what the other side of the outbreak may look like for Florida's economy
1: the question is going to be, how is Florida doing in its response? And is the response happening in a way that is engendering confidence among those who might want a vacation there?
0: This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hudson. The economic consequences of efforts to slow the spread of COVID-19 are becoming clear. A half million people in Florida have filed for unemployment in just three weeks, and that's just the people who are captured by the government data. There are others who have been turned back by the state unemployment website and its failures. Last week, the state began handing out paper documents at public libraries and FedEx storefronts. Coming up later on in the program, we will talk about how a lot of unemployed workers in South Florida will fare with the state jobless benefits and the additional federal government contributions. Now, this week, the first wave of direct payments from the federal government will begin showing up in the bank accounts of some people. On Twitter on Saturday, the IRS said it had sent out the first direct deposit checks. People who have filed a tax return for 2019 or 2018 and have authorized direct deposits with the IRS should see the money first. It may take several weeks or even months if you haven't filed your tax returns, get Social Security, or you don't have direct deposit with the IRS. These payments can be up to $1,200 for adults and $500 per child. Payments begin to go down for individuals making more than $75,000 a year and for couples making more than $150,000 a year. Now, most people in South Florida will qualify for at least some money. A lot of people will qualify for the entire amount. Ours is an economy dominated by low-wage jobs concentrated in the service industry and focused on tourism and hospitality. Last week, the Centers for Disease Control extended its order to keep cruise ships in dock for what could be a few months. Companies like Carnival, Royal Caribbean and Norwegian Cruise Line are major regional employers that do a lot of business with a lot of smaller companies. Hotel occupancy has plunged. Restaurants have struggled to transition to delivery and takeout only. Shopping malls have closed. Trying to picture what the economy may look like in the summer and fall is tough because the necessary public health actions like staying at home have a direct impact on these companies and workers. How long isolation is required and recommended to reduce the spread of the virus will determine how severe the economic damage is and how fast a recovery may happen. Raphael Bostic is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. His Federal Reserve region includes Florida. We spoke with him late last week. What are the indications, President Bostic, that you're looking for to tell you that the time is right to reopen the economy?
1: Well, for me, I think the the time being right is really not for me to tell, but rather to rely upon our public health officials. This, at its heart, is a public health crisis. They have much more expertise in knowing when the risk of uh, infection and the, the risk of exposure to um, average citizens is sufficiently low that it's uh, we're in a place to, to re-engage the economy in a robust way. So my cue is gonna be taken from uh, the public health officials, the experts who work in hospitals and who study these things, the epidemiologists. Um, when they indicate that we're in a safe, secure place, then that'll be a sign to me that yeah we're, we're ready to go and I'll bring my staff back into the bank because we're, we're working from home as well. And um, I would expect that we'll start to see that in a, in a wider swath of sectors. For an
0: economy that's dominated by tourism, trade, and real estate, like it is here in South Florida, what should we expect later on this year for economic activity?
1: Well, you know, I, I think in terms of expectations, you know, the, the first thing is if we see the public health response in Florida. Uh, be robust, such that there's not a concern that if by going to Florida, uh, going on a cruise or any of those sorts of things, there's going to be undue exposure, Um, that's going to be an important marker and an important uh, touch point for um, setting an appropriate level of expectations about what's going to happen with the economy. So first and foremost, you know, the question is going to be, how is Florida doing in its response? And is the response, happening in a way that is engendering confidence among those who might want a vacation there. If that's the case and the answer is yes to that, I think South Florida uh, could have a, a pretty good season. Um, if the answer is no, then I think things could uh, get get um, a bit rocky. Uh, but But to me, this is really about the public health response more than anything else. And I'm hopeful that Floridians will heed the guidance of health professionals and stay inside today until they get the, the all clear from them.
0: Are there more financial tools that the Federal Reserve has at its disposal that it has not utilized in this crisis yet?
1: Uh, we've used quite a bit yes, so Yes, you far. have. That's and, right. And what, and what I would say is we are ready if necessary to do more. Uh, I've been really proud of our team uh, at the Fed in terms of his creativity and and finding ways to use the tools that we have to accomplish and try to provide relief to markets in a wide set of circumstances. One thing that I hear consistently from our, our guys is that we are not just sitting on our hands, we continue to monitor the situation and to the extent necessary, we will find more creative ways to do things. And uh you know, the team at the Fed is really committed to making a positive change and being a positive force uh to try to get us to real recovery uh as soon as possible and uh you can be sure that we're going to be present and ready uh to act if and when that becomes necessary.
0: Finally, President Bostic, let me ask you a what if question, and I know asking that to a federal Reserve board president is always. Uh, wrought with uh, uh, some difficulty here.
1: Yeah, we'll see how that goes.
0: Yes, we will here together, as a matter of fact. The Federal Reserve has been very active, historically unprecedented in its activity regarding uh, essentially loan guarantees or buying uh, uh, loans and other kinds of of lending facilities um, uh, from the market to try to backstop uh, what's been happening. Who's on the hook if companies can't pay those loans back?
1: Well, it's a combination. So yeah, as I said, almost all of the, the lending that we uh, are doing in this emergency context does have backstop from federal government, from the taxpayers, uh, which is one of the reasons why we're taking some time to roll these things out. We want to make sure that there's enough uh, due diligence that's in place such that uh, the amount of losses we might expect will be minimized. But if losses go higher than what the backstop is, Um, That'll be a liability of the Federal Reserve and we'll have to cover that. But at this point though I think it is far more important that we make sure that we provide as much support as we possibly can You know one of the lessons that we've learned through a succession of crises is that oftentimes the extra pain that's experienced is precisely because the policymakers did not act quickly enough and did not act boldly enough so I'd rather us be criticized for being too bold and too energetic and too uh, eager to support and too willing to support than uh, have the history books right that we sat on our hands when we could have done something. And it led to a lot of companies going out of business, and a lot of people losing their jobs.
0: Speaking late last week with Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta President Raphael Bostic. Now still to come, the tough road ahead for workers and wages in the low pay economy of South Florida.
2: In Miami-Dade County, there are over 200,000 workers in occupations that would, if they were on unemployment, would be getting paid more than they would otherwise.
0: We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening. Tens of thousands of people in South Florida have been thrown into unemployment by COVID-19 and the public health measures taken in the effort to slow the spread of the virus. The most significant impacts are felt in the industries where the most economic vulnerable work, restaurants, hotels, and hospitality in general. Take hotel housekeepers. According to FIU's Jorge Perez Metropolitan Center, 23,000 people have that job. Their average pay, just over $11 an hour. Based
2: on what the the current Florida state unemployment benefits uh, pay uh, for, for those types of laid-off workers, um, somebody at the median wage of $11 an hour would be getting about $200 um, in unemployment benefits.
0: That's Maria Yolcheva. She's assistant director of planning at the FIU think tank. $200 a week works out to dollars an hour to replace a full-time job. Florida's state portion of unemployment tops out at $275 a week. The federal stimulus adds another $600 a week. Gilcheva calls that a generous addition to state benefits.
2: So it will have a significant positive impact in stabilizing income and, and households for, for those that are, are most affected.
0: And in South Florida's low-pay economy, that's over one million people. About three out of every eight workers in Florida earn less than $600 a week. That includes people working for a company and people who are self-employed. $600 a week is just over $31,000 a year. That's way below the average household income in the region of $56,000 a year.
2: In Miami-Dade County, there are over 200,000 workers in occupations that would, um, if if they were on unemployment, would be getting paid more than they would otherwise in in terms of earnings.
0: 200,000 workers who could be making more money by not working because of primarily the federal portion of the unemployment benefit that will be paid.
2: That's correct, yes.
0: And that federal portion, in addition to the state maximum, would equal $875 a week. That's the maximum unemployment payout. And that's about $45,000 on an annual basis. But of course, the unemployment benefits do not pay for a full year.
2: Yes, so far, um, the, the unemployment benefits will last for about four months, um, of, of April, May, June, and, and July. Um, And um, I've heard already that there are discussions in um, in Washington that if um, if need be, if the the crisis continues, uh, there could be a possible extension. But as of now, um, it it is at the end of July that they will expire.
0: This covid caused recession may further intensify the low wage environment in South Florida. The labor market has switched directions on a dime in February. The official unemployment rate here was a record two point three percent. Historically low. If a company was looking and competing for a worker, it may have had to compete on price, meaning offering more money. But with tens of thousands of people losing their jobs within a matter of days because of COVID-19, there will be a lot more people looking for work when work finally comes back. I've heard it
2: from some employers in the hotel industry that they're prepared to, lo- to offer lower wages um, for, for returning employees just because they, they think, well, people are without jobs. So they would be happy to take any job, even if it's at at, at a lower wage than than their previous.
0: So that could exacerbate some of the vulnerabilities that have really been consequential uh, for residents, economically speaking here.
2: Exactly. It could. And a concern of mine is that um, wages will be suppressed. There used to be a time when we used to talk about creating jobs. Um, it seemed that over the last year prior to COVID-19, we were gradually moving away from that and starting to talk about uh, raising wages. And I'm, I'm afraid we, we may be taking a step back um, now because of the, the, the current uh, rate of unemployment.
0: Because supply and demand, once the economy kind of moves through this public health crisis, that the demand for workers uh, may be slow to come back, but there's going to be tens of thousands of South Floridians looking for work at the same time.
2: That's quite right. I mean, if you, if you imagine the economy as, as a big, big ship, and all of a sudden, the, the engine ships, uh, of the ship stops completely, the engine will start, but it's hard for the ship to start moving. It won't move at, at a rapid speed right away. The growth in employment, unlike the loss of employment, will be much slower.
0: Maria Yolcheva with FIU's Jorge Perez Metropolitan Center. Still to come, a personal story of money and the price of life in South Florida.
3: I can't complain about the living, you know, how much money I make. It's just that over the years, the, uh, the it, it's been static.
0: This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening and for supporting public radio. All season at this time in the program, we've been bringing you financial statements, stories of money and the price of life in South Florida. And life and money has changed so fast and in so many ways for so many people because of COVID-19. If you or someone you know wants to share their story, please email us, sunshineeconomy at wlrnnews.org. It's sunshine Economy at wallerandnews.org Today's story is from Steve Drucker. He first moved to South Florida as a young husband and father more than 30 years ago. He's an essential worker today, a pharmacist who has worked steadily for decades even as the business has changed considerably.
3: My name is Steve Drucker. I live in uh unincorporated Miami, but it's just outside of Miami shores. And I'm a pharmacist, and I've been a pharmacist for 43 years. Well, I wound up down here um, after I was married to you know my first wife. And uh, we had a baby. And uh, I really wanted to own my own pharmacy. And uh, that seemed to be almost out of reach in New York. Chains were coming in and uh, pharmacies were getting expensive and there was a, a real uh, shortage of opportunities. And um, we lived in Manhattan at the time and cost of living was getting very high, especially with a baby. So um, we decided to move down here. My ex-wife was uh, born and raised here. So we had friends and family and it was like the easiest place to move in. And there were more opportunities in miami at the time there was a shortage of pharmacists and all around it just worked out better cost of living was much lower when i first moved down here it was almost sort of uh, sleepy compared to what it is now you know that was 38 years ago at night anytime i think it was 10 o'clock at night this came boulevard head just flashing yellows You can just drive on Biscayne Boulevard without stopping, all the way from downtown up to uh, like Aventura. Uh, There was a lot of independent pharmacies. There was always chains, but there was a lot of different chains. A lot of the Midwestern chains were here and a lot of opportunities. There was uh, a whole bunch of companies that were offering uh, buy-ins and franchises. And it just uh, seemed a whole lot easier especially if you have uh, small children. It was much easier to put uh, a toddler in a diaper and a T-shirt than it was to cover them up with gloves and boots and scarves and hats. So it was a much easier life in general and with more pharmacy opportunities. Well, there was a shortage of... Um, a pharmacists at the time. Didn't have to wear a suit and a tie. Felt good about a lot of the things that we were able to do. I, I liked the, the flexibility of the schedules. Over the years, I've worked a bunch of different schedules depending upon what I needed at the time. I worked a night schedule, an early morning schedule, whatever fit into my needs at the time. Now I wear jeans, a scrub coat, you know, a, a scrub pants, a, a lab coat, a t-shirt, doesn't really much matter <laughs> it's, you know it's, but it's no it's no shirt and tie and it's no nine to five it's a more relaxed atmosphere where I work anyway than it would be in an office and being competitive and, uh, I've had friends of mine who were attorneys they had to have a certain amount of billable hours every month and uh very competitive <laughs> I can't complain about the living, you know, how much money I make. It's just that over the years, the, uh, the it, it's been static. If I told you, you know, within five ten thousand dollars $10,000, i have made the same exact money for the last 10, 12, 13 years. It's not bad, but it's not the job it once was. Because it used to be a really relatively high-paying job and now it's just okay. Things change and, and everything, is, everything is in equilibrium. I have three sons and obviously I was always supporting them on my relatively higher salary. And now they're all out on their own. So I'm spending less money doing that and uh, comparatively making less money as a pharmacist. So it worked out, you know, uh, in that sense. Also, now I'm eligible for Social Security, so that's an extra income. just started at 66. It's a big difference. It really is. You know, it's uh, it, it makes a difference between paying your bills and getting by or doing nicer things. It is an essential job. Over the years, people have taking more and more medications per patient than they ever had. It's something that uh, that has to be done, and it's um, an essential service. And I just feel good doing it. Well, I work in a pharmacy that's uh, extremely high volume. Uh, We fill between, say, 1,500 and 2,000 prescriptions a day, which is is quite a bit. I really don't work with the public that much. I, I very seldom do I see patients. I'm more or less dealing with doctors' offices, hospitals, clinics, assisted living facilities, nursing homes, and basically coordinating the medication and making sure that the patients do get the right medications with no drug interactions, Uh, between all the meds because a lot of the the patients see doctors in large groups or in clinic settings. So there is some overlap between what one doctor is prescribing and the other. And medications are constantly changed and the people still take the old one that's supposed to be discontinued. So that's a big part of my job is just checking over what the people are taking and making sure that they're not getting duplicates or triplicates of medications for the same condition. We're sort of monitoring, you know, the patient. And in that, we're bringing together two or three different doctors from different practices and uh, making sure that there is no overlap and that the doctors are aware of what the patients are taking from other places. People are panicking and everybody wants backup, which also creates tremendous amount of increased volume. Most of the insurance companies have lifted the early refill ban. In other words, you had to use 80 or 90 percent of your medication before the insurance would pay for the next refill. Uh, Very much like it would be during a hurricane or any other natural disaster. Uh, Whatever patients need, they can order at any time, even if they just got it uh, three months ago out of a six-month supply. You know, the things that people want that aren't medications, we can't supply. You know, sort of like there was a shortage of gloves. Now we're finally getting gloves, and it's almost a month later. Masks, we still can't get. It, very rare supply. You know, it's uh, if, if we need uh, 100 dozen, we'll get three dozen, four dozen. The masks are very hard to come by. I don't see uh, that many patients, but we have about 40 employees. So I'm basically getting exposed to at least 40 people a day. So we're all wearing gloves and masks in the store, you know, even working. I have a mask in the car, so I don't wear it in the car, but if I have to get out and go to a Walgreens to pick something up or, or go to a Publix or go to any place to pick something up, I'll put the mask on before I get out of the car most of us in in this pharmacy are not dealing with the public but we do have uh, uh, 13 i think it is 13 full-time drivers and they're delivering to nursing homes and they're delivering to people's houses and they're delivering to alfs so the exposure actually is still there even though i'm not seeing the people directly You're hoping and assuming that everybody else is doing the right thing, that the drivers are doing the right thing, that the, the patients are doing the right thing, they're, they're, they're protecting the people at the nursing homes. So because whatever they come in contact with, and when they come back to the store to get more deliveries, to drop off all the signed you know prescription receipts, uh, I'm coming in contact with all of them. So I'm coming in contact with the hundreds of people that they come in contact with. we're starting a split shift so uh, all of us aren't there at the same time we always have almost the same hours now we have a crew that comes in at six in the morning which is half of the other but the same crew comes in at six in the morning and leaves at 1 one thirty, and then the afternoon crew will come in at a one and stay till 9 nine thirty. so that at any one given time there's only half the amount of people in the store interacting so it cuts down the odds a whole lot I'm working the later shift now, the 1 to nine thirty, one 1 to 9, because uh, I really prefer that <laughs> over getting up at four thirty in the morning. So you just, it has to be like sort of almost crazy faith-based that everybody's doing the right thing all the way around. I always, uh, <laughs> I've always been an optimist, you know, no matter how good or bad things look.
0: pharmacist Steve Drucker's story of money and the price of life in South Florida. As a pharmacist with more than 40 years' experience, he's still working during COVID-19. He's considered an essential worker. If you or someone you know wants to share their story, please email us, sunshineeconomy at wlrnnews.org. It's sunshine Economy at wlrnnews.org. You can hear all of our financial statements, stories of money and the price of life, by visiting wlrn.org slash financial statements. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter at WLRN. We're also on Instagram and look for us on Facebook and podcasts of this program by searching Sunshine Economy. Joe Johnson is our technical director. Katie Leprey is our engagement editor. Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening.